ethereal, majestic, mystical, vivid, picturesque. These are but a few terms that can describe the work of famous American auteur Terence Malick. Filled to the brim with a deep fascination with nature, man, the beyond, and the gulf in between, he crafts films with a stylistic distinction that undoubtedly is his own and can never mis be misconstrued as another. Despite merely having five films under his belt, he has set a definitive tone for American filmmaking and changed cinema forever. He rejects conventional prosaic frames in cinema like plots, characters, and particular story structures and works at his own pace, style, and takes his times many times in exhaustive production and post-production processes. After giving up work as a journalist and a philosophy professor and graduating from the American Film Institute with an MFA, he produced some of the most striking films in the 1970s, Badlands and Days of Heaven, both inducted into the National Regis Film Registry in the U.S. Library of Congress. All of a sudden, though, he had a hiatus for 20 years, moving to Paris and producing many scripts and different things that were never realized or produced. Then he came back with two big films, The Thin Red Line, an acclaimed war epic in 2008, and in 2005, the story of John Smith, Pocahontas, and the Jamestown landing and settling The New World. This past week, his fifth and latest film, The Tree of Life, was formally released in limited theaters. For many lovers of film, this is an exciting and essential event with word that Malik has even more in store and that is not, he is not going slowly into the cinematic night and staying as public even for his private life being as reclusive and guarded as ever. Welcome to Chronicle Cast. This is Matthew Groves, founder and editor, and sitting next to me... Andrew Bocock, assistant editor, author, and several other things that I will leave to you to find out. Uh, this is Nate Bell. I'm a contributor to the site, occasionally, whenever I feel like it. <laughs> and uh, this is Andy Mutta, also a contributor to the site. And live from Atwater, California, in Northern Ooh. California. The intellectual capital of the world, now that you're there, Andy. Ah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Maybe bristle at that. So, the Tree of Life. We're going to be talking the entire episode about just one film, The Tree of Life. But we will incorporate his other cinema. He has four other films, so they will definitely come up. This, the similar stylistic things, or thematic things. So, yeah, The Tree of Life. Quite so a film indeed. So where are we going to start? <clears throat> Excuse me, I've been sick. Can you tell? <laughs> uh, where are we going to start with this? Are we going to start at the beginning? Are we going to start... We're going to start with a little plot synopsis. Well, Terrence Malick starts at the beginning, mm. so why don't we? He does okay. start at the beginning. Oh, he really starts at the beginning. That is time. true. Well, do you have some uh, background uh, on the plot that you we do include? We do. Here and here. Go ahead. Okay. The Tree of Life. It stars... Brad Pitt, Jessica Chastain, and Sean Penn, and tells the story of a Texas family. And it seems to take a more autobiographical portrait, although with Malick you never know how much is and how much isn't. Because who knows anything about Terrence Malick, right? <laughs> but it is set where Malick grew up in Texas, in suburbia in the 1950s. So that definitely... Another amazing element of it is the fact that it does depict the beginning and the ending of the universe. And 
That's all I'm going to say. So it's not a very ambitious film, is what you're it saying. It is an extremely no. ambitious it film. It lacks scope. And also, <laughs> it has won the Palme d'Or, the top prize of the coveted Cannes Film Festival, which this year at Cannes, there are quite a lot of big gun auteurs. So That's true. And it, uh, it, it had quite a reception, too. Apparently there were boos as well as cheers in the audience. Yes, mostly cheers. There were a handful of boos. And there has been... This is a film, just to preface that despite a strong and mostly positive critical acclaim, that it is still a vastly entrenched and debated film amongst audiences and critics alike. So we're definitely going to get into nitty-gritty. We're going to get all in the details. We're going to talk about Terrence Malick as a filmmaker, and we're going to talk about this film. All right. Who wants to go? Okay, um, I'll, <clears throat> I'll start. How about that? All right. Um, so... My uh, experience with uh, Terrence Malick has been kind of an interesting one because, let's see, what was the first film of his I saw? I think um, probably The New World, actually. And when I first saw it, I I thought it was a good film. I had some issues with it. Um, however, I, I was pretty interested in uh, the rest of this filmmaker's canon. It, it, you can tell, watch any... Any one of his films, and you can just tell that this guy is different, you know. Um, even though each one of his films is very different in its own way. Um, let's see, after New World, though, I saw... What was it? Um, it had, yeah, it Days was of Days of Heaven. Heaven, which I wasn't a fan of when I first saw it. However, um, <clears throat> after revisiting it, um, even though I still have a few issues with it, it's a it's a very beautiful film, very influential Um there are just things about that film that really stick with me um, that I, I think are really set it apart from any other film in its era or even today. Um, however, I feel like uh, despite how good uh, Malick's 70s work is, I feel like he, um, after his hiatus, um, he broadened his scope and I feel like he used what he learned from his earlier two films in order to strengthen who he was as a filmmaker and uh, really kind of step him up to an almost ethereal, otherworldly kind of filmmaker um, that that he is now. And I think Tree of Life is especially the ultimate encapsulation of how um, intimate and yet otherworldly he can be at the same time. And it's obviously a very personal project for him. I hear he was working Definitely. on it. For the last yeah. forty years, yeah. <laughs> it was the first one of the first film concepts. He yes, had and it was with. one actually during his hiatus that he was especially working on quite a bit. It was a, originally a concept called Q, uh, which was a, it, it started with the origin of the world, but then he broadened it and expanded it into you know and 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 also made it personal. Which that's the hallmark of this film that to me is striking. Because it has the intimacy of his 70s work in that it is centered on this family. But then at the same time, it has a grand scope like his later work. And to me, it's like a mirror of Days of of Heaven and then something like The New World or The Thin Red Line, you know, at the same time. So it seems like he's culminating all these different things together into one, you know, singular piece now, I don't think it's like, you know, the ultimate swan song or the, the ultimate, like, you know, it's, you know, 
Although it feels like that. I mean, yeah, it, it, it does. It could be. It could yes. be a, a great Very much film. so. But I do feel like each and every one of his films, to me, I have three brothers. Each and every one of those films is like a brother to me. I love them, and I love them dearly and equally. I may, you know, have certain feelings I have towards one brother in a different way, towards another brother. But to me, all those brothers I love, all those brothers I embrace, no matter what. And so there's there's this and and to me Terrence Malick is somebody who stirs me deep in my soul and also makes me think and kind of awestruck by his you know technical and you know thematic you know uh uh parts of his films and structures of his films personally. So definitely go ahead. Um so Andy, I would definitely love to hear what you have to say. <laughs> As, as an introduction to the tree of life and Terrence uh, Well, I think his whole career, maybe contrary to what Nate thinks, his whole career, Terrence Malick has been building, building. I feel like this is. I haven't even gone yet. <laughs> I feel like this is so far his masterpiece in which everything that he's done before is encapsulated in this film. He has. His camera movements, the voiceovers, the character work, the lighting. It is such a beautiful film in so many different layers. And I really appreciate Malik's earlier work, but I really love his newer work. And I really think he strives to, like Matt said, to move the soul, to understand what it means to be human to understand our conflicts, to understand what is joyful in life and what's painful in life. And I think questions existence and what existence should be and what it's like. And what I love so much about Tree of Life is, Matt already discussed a little bit, that it takes the idea of the beginning of the universe, like existence. We get like these shots of planets being formed and Earth and dinosaurs. Then we get like this nuanced, intimate scenes of this family. So... It's like the universe and something as large as the universe and something as intimate as the human being and the human experience. And how does that all fit in with the grand scheme of things? And I think it's, it's masterful. Yeah. And I would, <clears throat> I think I, uh, probably in this whole circle, um, probably most agree with Andy. Maybe, um, I, I, I haven't heard everybody go and, and give their, <laughs> give their little spiel yet, but I would say, um, I would agree. I think that, Terrence Malick's other work, um, a lot of, some of which I love, some of which I think has some issue, or some of which I have some issues with. Ultimately, I feel like The Tree of Life is his definitive masterpiece at this point. I feel like it is the most intimate spectacle I've ever seen, and uh, at this point, um, I feel like me saying a phrase like this almost cheapens what it, what the movie is in some ways. But it's probably one of my favorite movies at this point. Um, I think The Tree of Life is just beautiful wall-to-wall. Like, uh, everything about this film just resonates uh, with me. And I think that um, everything from the visuals to the narration to the story, the acting, everything I just thought was um, fantastic. Uh, Not to say other people don't have issues with it. That's totally fine. Um, this, this is a very personal film to me, I guess, um, in, in many ways. I, I totally understand if people don't connect with it the way that I do, but 
for me, this is like a, a very incredible spiritual experience. And, uh, I feel like if anybody can even just see this film in theaters and get a glimpse of what I felt, um, they will be very satisfied. So, um, where do we go from here? Uh, well, we definitely should have Nate chime in here because we've had Andy talk, me talk, and, uh, and I want to hear what Nate has to say. <laughs> well, I feel like you're saving so. mine for last because uh, no, um, <laughs> I, I don't mean I don't mean to save yours for last, Nate. You mm-hmm. deserve all the, the time that you need. Well, Take your time. Tear down this film. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm that joking. is totally unfair. Well, I'm totally joking. I simply know because, well, I, all right. I he will has quite a nuanced perspective that I think is well, definitely worthy of the conversation. Well, thank I'm you. Listen, I'll, I'll preface my opinion of the film by saying that uh, no matter how you feel about Malick, this film is an event, and anyone who cares about cinema should see it. Um, it's an extraordinary film in many, many ways. It's... Uh, it's a kind of film that keeps alive the possibility of art in American cinema. And I think that's what's so exciting about Malick, is that every time a new Malick film comes out, uh, there's a lot of buzz. Of course, I hate that word. <laughs> but there's a lot of anticipation. And you always know that you're getting something uh, special with a Malick film. Mm. Um, that being said, I think that of all the films he's made, all five of them, um, I feel the most distant from the Tree of Life. It did not move me in the same way it moved you all, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, I recognize uh, that there's a lot of formal invention going on in the film. I appreciated the cinematography, the editing, even some of the performances. And yet, I feel like it's almost too ambitious. It tries to do too much and then ends up accomplishing very little. I think that um, <clears throat> what we should talk about chiefly is this strange detour that the film takes about very early on, uh, maybe 15 minutes into the film, it takes this bizarre detour that takes us away from the story we've been watching and into a flashback to the beginnings of the world, mm-hmm. right? I think we briefly touched on that. Right. And um, just so people know, I know we're about... 14 minutes of the podcast right now. We are going to talk about certain key plot points. If people don't want to know all the details, then it's fine. Listen to this after you see the film. Right. Because we are going to get into the details. Yes, yes. So, So, specifically, Nate, what are you talking about? Okay, well, you all know what I'm talking about since you've seen the film. But it, uh, for no apparent reason, um, flashes back millions of years, maybe billions of years, to uh, the beginning of the local solar system, it seems. And, uh, and it's worth noting at this point that this is not the creation of the world as portrayed in Genesis, necessarily. It's, not, it's more Darwinian, well, perhaps. Depending on your um, interpretation. Yes, well, we see, uh, we see life happening at the cellular level, um, if you believe in biblical uh, evolution or something. That's, uh, that's another story. I do not. I think um, that you know this is a uh, kind of a science. It becomes a science film for about half an hour, and if that film for thirty minutes it goes on were to be taken and bodily transplanted into another theater, I think it would make a great IMAX movie or uh, one of those Disney nature films that's coming out. <laughs> well, the irony if you just is... add a Morgan Freeman narration to it. You have. A Disney nature film. Oddly enough, he has a companion piece that's an IMAX documentary called The Voyage of Time, ah. which actually has a completely mm-hmm. new footage, nothing mm-hmm. in 
He was shooting it simultaneously, mm. but nothing in Tree of Life is in this. Not even the outtakes or anything. Oh, well, like that. I was unaware of that yeah. in his existence, and I so, can't wait to see it. It is a gorgeous film. I just think that it's totally incongruent for the film that he's trying to tell. It, it feels like there are two competing movies going on at this point. And I asked myself in the theater, why are we watching the uh, dinosaurs, the uh, cellular uh, structure of uh, animals forming? Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's lovely, but I'm not particularly moved by it. It doesn't tell me anything about the story that I thought I was watching, the story about um, a boy uh, coming of age in Waco, Texas. And uh, I felt like there were conflicting ideas going on in the movie, and uh, I think that Malick, being ever ambitious, tends to bite off more than he can chew. And so I came away from the film not uh, feeling uh, emotionally engaged from it. It just sort of floats away. Uh, <clears throat> so that's where I stand on this film. I, I have conflicted feelings about it, obviously. Um, I maybe uh, I appreciate it as an experience, but not. It did not engage me emotionally, and I'll mm -hmm. attempt to explain why later. But okay. that's my introduction. Okay, so um, if anyone wants to chime in into the um, some of the uh, rebuttal of maybe some of the things he said, or or, or yeah. even just as a well, response to say, something. I would like to see what specifically you were moved by the film. Um, well, is it the character's plight? Was I'll say, it, uh, I'll say, the... I'll say one thing that I was definitely moved by, and this is okay. something that particularly, and I've said this with Andrew before, child actors in films can be extremely vexing for me. It's something that really can get under my skin personally. Something that I cannot take, and something that I, I really like. I either find that they're too mature or they're too innocent. They, they never seem to strike a balance and seem authentic. And one of the things, and like I said before, and it, this is once again a personal thing and something this any other, I felt like those three brothers and, and their story and their trajectory to me as someone having brothers, I felt so like, these are my brothers. These are some of the, this is... So, and to me, that it's like, even though I don't know this story in specifics, I, it is not my experience like them, that to me, that lived-in realism, even done only through, you know, minor conversation or long stretches where it is just looks and tactile and this and that, and it's, and it's done through the smallest little things. And I think that's what Malik is really good at, in the smallest little things saying so much. And, and he's extremely so well at economic at that. Yeah, and I, it, it rings so true. I mean, there's that sequence of their first child growing up and then him interacting with his younger brother. And then the more kids come and how they play with other kids and how they interact and how the parents interact. And it just feels so real and so honest. And so much is said just through their looks. And I think the acting is perfect for the kids. I don't know how... The camera's, like, in their face the whole time. And you're like, how do they... <laughs> How do they do this? Yeah, yeah. And, and what's fascinating <clears throat> about it, too, is the fact that, in, in all honesty, he strikes a balance between childhood. He never makes it fully... I mean, and he does this thing like he does in other films, like uh, what he does with New World and the Natives. He kind of makes it idyllic at first, but then you start to see the cracks in that. You start to see the maybe the, the fallen nature. You start to see certain things about them and you start to see how you know there's one point where the old eldest brother who seems to be a malagate uh, malik surrogate says to brad pitt who's this you know rough and you know 
over strict father, just this this kind of almost you know you understand the father mm. character, but he's well, almost reprehensible mm-hmm. in some ways. And he says, "I'm more like you than her," and talking about his mother. And to me, like that. that seem to ring such a... Just don't a, you think these characters were one-dimensional? I'll just ask you. Don't you think the mother and the father in that movie were un, uh, one-dimensional? No, they're allegorical. They're symbolic. I don't. They are symbolic. Know. One represents nature, Malik tells us. The right. other represents grace. Uh, the mother is grace. The father is nature. But nature I don't think there's hard, anything wrong with them. Nature is cruel. Well, I, don't I just think there's think anything wrong with them being this way. They but never came like, alive as characters to me. They simply did. Because they still... I think they are... They're not, like, deep, rude characters, but Brad Pitt as the father, uh, he goes through, so, so, I, he definitely changes for me. He's a character who, we see him as one who's a loving father who plays with his kids before bedtime, and then we see him as a strict, harsh man. Yeah, I see him as very more than one-dimensional. I mean, even though, even within his allegorical standing, mm-hmm. I... <clears throat> One of the things about the film for me was I saw all these people as real people. I mean, maybe yeah. maybe I just see people as dumb. I don't know. But I, I saw all of these people as, as fully-fledged three-dimensional characters because I saw you witness the development in the very beginning. And you get to see um, comparatively so little uh, of these people's lives because this is about – this film is – I mean, it's about life, but it's about everything. I mean, the universe – it's how one life connects to the rest of the universe. Mm-hmm. The very beginning of the film, it's a slow fade-in of some sort of ethereal... Um, I, you don't know what it is. It it's, looks it's like a, an aurora. Yeah, aura, yeah. yeah, aurora. Yeah, aurora or something like, like uh, that. The northern lights. Uh-huh. Something. And you hear, a, you hear a gentle voiceover come over that, and it kind of, kind of begins to string together what the film is. It's, it's about the fabric between the universe and mankind. But, but does it draw connections between those things? Yes, I think very much so. How? How, how does um, what the boy is experiencing relate to the Aurora Borealis that we're looking at in the beginning of the movie? Well, I think, okay, well, you do see the formation of life. And for me, um, the question that the main character asks and the question that Malik is asking, because I think it's also a very spiritual film, much more blatantly spiritual than Malik's other films. And really? Really? Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think because we see like, this beginning of the universe, it's so grand, it's so large, and we see this creation of dinosaurs, and then we see the forming of human life and this family, and this one man struggles with his place in the universe and his relationship to God. And it's like in a universe so grand, in a place that we're such a small part of, how do, what is our purpose and place in the universe? And if there's a God, how do we relate to him and how does he relate to us? And I think that's the beauty in seeing the beginning of the earth and seeing a small intimate trail of family. It's, it's the development of both the universe and of a single insignificant person, seemingly. And, like, and, there, and again, it's not, obviously it's not a very direct connection. It's very metaphorical. It's kind of like, you could almost even maybe interpret the, uh, I almost like to see it and kind of, this might sound a little weird and abstract, but almost like the the universe and the creation of everything is maybe a dream sequence of, you know, the, the child who is narrating it. And maybe at the same time, the story of the people that we're witnessing is a dream sequence of the universe, if you want to take that 
other perspective that this is this is you just really say that you know say that this is as spirit you know even more spiritual than we're implying right. and and I know? and I would say too much like Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain I think this is a great midpoint between science and and you know faith and I think not in necessarily you know uh, the, the the usual concepts of the institutional faith i think it it's broader than that it encompasses humanism it encompasses you know all sorts of religions whether it's judeo-christian whether it's eastern this that and the other and i think it casts a massively wide net of like getting to the core of all these spiritual well, questions that we're talking i have about. a different theory about what the film is trying to get at and i think that it's um we're clued into it by the presence of the Sean Penn character. I don't think we've mentioned yet. Mm. He's basically remembering the events of what of the 1950s. He's like the eldest son. He's the eldest son oh, who grown up. who is remembering his childhood, um, and he's dealing also with the gr- uh, grief that he experiences over the death of one of his brothers. And he basically, we see him in the present day. And he is remembering uh, his childhood. And toward the end, there is uh, closure to that story. Mm-hmm. As he... Hmm, spoilers ahead? Oh, yeah. We already talked it. about it. We okay. already said it, man. Um, where he basically uh, comes to terms with, um, with the death of his brother. And he sees all of his family exactly as they were in his childhood on sort of this long beach that could be heaven or maybe limbo or something like that. And I see this as his journey coming to grips with um, how God governs the universe, um, how, you know, the meaning of death and therefore life. Right. Um, that's how I view the film. <laughs> I really don't know how... Can we talk about the dinosaurs for a second? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay, we see dinosaurs in the film. There are dinosaurs in the mm-hmm. film. There's a moment where a dinosaur... Uh, I don't know what kind of dinosaur it is. It's not a raptor. We need Borello in here. For that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we we need some uh, some experts. But um, there's a moment where a dinosaur almost crushes the head of a weakened dinosaur who's lying at the riverbank, but he stops just short and then wanders off, never to be seen again. I think that what we're meant to take from that is we're seeing the uh, we're seeing grace mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. Uh, enacted yeah. for the first time. Um, and we're that seeing... we're not just animals. We're not mm-hmm. just... And, 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 and I, I, I think Malik says, believes this, and I think I believe this too, that we are not just simply the awful, horrible people that need to be whipped on our back or whatever, like a Lutheran kind of like like punishing, like we are so awful and evil, that there are, even in like our animal sense, you know, there is a sense of grace and of, you know, of of kindness or of restraint in us. I would also add that that scene is probably the corniest scene in the movie. Oh, and for me, it doesn't work at all. It's so corny. It's so it's, kind of gooey in a even more... It's showing our cycle. It's getting us into... It's, it starts with the cosmos and it, the story and the loss or whatever. But it starts with the cosmos and it's bringing us in further and further and closer 
to that period in time, the 1950s, that it spends Doesn't most of the time. Doesn't he skip a lot of history? I mean, <laughs> if yeah, he's going he's, to go all the way back and show us dinosaurs. He skips a lot of time in history to get to the modern day, too. I mean, what do you, I mean, <laughs> like, like, uh, do we want to get the entire life cycle and have a 10-hour film of the entire life cycle of this entire character? I, 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 I disagree with the premise that, you know. That Andy, tell me truly, these... did you like the dinosaur sequence? Did it move your heart? Bless your soul. <laughs> Okay, it didn't move my heart, but I wasn't bothered by it. I, you know, obviously I think technically the dinosaurs could have been done a little better, um, but it didn't bother me, and I thought it was interesting. And I think it adds to more of the discussion about the film itself. So I wasn't like, oh my gosh, this is so moving and brilliant, but I was puzzled by it, and I found it very interesting. So, you know. First we're given the universe, (laughs) then the animals, the vegetation, the people... The people we see in the main... I mean, how is this... It, it seems like a yeah. natural, you know... Well, that's one thing... That's another thing I, I think I should talk about. And Andy, you hinted at this before. You said that you appreciate Mar- Malick's latest films, mo- most recent films, to his 70s work. And I think that sometimes, when we're talking about Malick, there are two camps that form. Uh, those that prefer his early films and those that prefer the films he made after coming back from that mysterious 20-year hiatus... I will say right now that I prefer his early films. He's I'm just 70s team Malik. That kind, yeah, I'm, in, I'm 70s Malik. I prefer, I find myself more drawn to that kind of coolly detached perspective, the irony <laughs> of Badlands and Days of Heaven. Uh, I think he came back from that hiatus, um, an interesting philosopher, but a weakened filmmaker, uh, a storyteller. Let me just say storyteller. Um, I think his storytelling skills... Um, came back uh, less sure, and he became um, kind of a more sentimental guy. Warmer, and yet still distant, but kind of warm and gooey. Watching the New World, I felt uh, kind of, it was sickly sweet. Inspired by nature and this, that, and the other, showing, you know, a humanity, You know, Pocahontas throwing herself at John Smith, and And then an ending that is either possibly tragic at the same time, filled with melancholy and sadness, because you never, you know, the the joining of these two worlds could never have happened, and she failed. I mean, seriously, I'm sorry. Like, it just seems like you want to, like, boil it down to some certain kind of gooey essence or whatever and say that it's just pure molasses or honey and that it, his, there's so much more his films that. are so sensitive the the tree of life is so sensitive that the narrators have to whisper oh because oh they're goodness. so full how, of emotion how dare he actually be earnest my god <laughs> listen he has to be earnest i what believe an awful thing in a filmmaker listen i know i know i'm being awfully harsh i'm being awfully harsh on him I think that it's worth noting that earnestness and faith are admirable qualities, especially in a world that tends to reject those things. And so I admire Malik as a person, just not as a filmmaker. I think it's weakened his filmmaking. Except for now he fits sternly, and not that he already didn't already, with Tarkovsky, with Bergman, with Dreyer, as being he does part not of a religious transcendent cinema. I'm sorry, no, compared as to Bergman. a religious Bergman, transcendent he's... cinema that that goes beyond and can open up the world to what filmmaking can be and what filmmaking and faith can be. And what only filmmaking can be. The Tree of Life accomplishes things that no other medium... Yeah. Like what, Andy? Like, well, what does it accomplish, though? I've, I'm just curious to know what you mean by that. I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I, I find people saying the same things about Malick's film. They're beautiful, they're moving, they're amazing, they're innovative, and yet 
He accomplishes poetry. He accomplishes almost like a symphony or an operatic, this, that, and the other. He brings together all these different things. Cinema as being something that can relate to drama, can relate to painting and photography, can relate to opera. He incorporates and symphony, all those disciplines. And this, that, and the other. Yes. yes. And and he, he and he celebrates all of those disciplines. Excellent. He goes places. Like, he goes to the beginning and the end of time. I see movies that do that all the time. They're documentaries. They're nature documentaries. They, those. Well, why that. can't that be in a narrative? Nature. It, it can. Memory comments on God. It comment comments on like the universe. Other uh, filmmakers do that all the time. Which ones? Well, we were just mentioning some: Tarkovsky, Bergman, Bresson, uh, even okay. Antonioni. All right, let, let's 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 uh-huh. go down to brass tacks here, and just let's let's start to to cut into this a little more, because like Bergman is my favorite filmmaker of all time. Tarkovsky is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. I don't like Terrence Malick as much as I like those two guys, but I think the Tree of Life accomplishes things that. No other filmmaker in this modern day has accomplished, and beyond back to the careers of those guys. Um, those are the like those are two comparisons that I mean I can't really compare um, Malik so much to Bergman yeah, maybe, but but maybe maybe them. more Tarkovsky. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like as mystics, all all of these filmmakers that we've mentioned are film mystics, mm-hmm. and I think. Um, Malik grabs onto something that is so beautiful in filmmaking today that people uh, like aforementioned filmmakers did, and that it's so rare um, in what we see in cinema today. Not that it's not that it's completely you know void of filmmakers like that, but especially in American cinema, even as Nate mentioned earlier, you don't see something like this. Tell me, um, what does Malik do? What does he accomplish that no other filmmaker accomplishes? Okay, well, for one, I feel like he is encapsulated, I think I said this earlier, um, everything about the universe and beauty and pain, suffering, um, all in one film and kind of drawn a very wide and, you know, you argue over ambitious arc. I argue that um, for what this film was, it couldn't have been done any better, in my opinion. I don't feel like there's any other filmmaker that is qualified to, it, it, in this modern day to tell a story like this and do it the way that he did. Because here, it, let me finish real quick. Because as I was saying, I have issues with uh, some of Malick's other films. Um, I thought Days of Heaven was beautiful. I felt detached from it emotionally. I thought Badlands was great. I really liked it overall. Um, I had, you know, um, I, I was a little puzzled by some of the things with the characters in the movies, but it didn't detract from it. Um, Thin Red Line I thought was brilliant, uh, especially for a war film. Um, New World, here's the thing, like, when I came to New World, um, I probably need to see it again, but I remember the editing in that film being really distracting for me, um, and, and the way he jump cuts and everything. I, um, I, I, I felt like he was doing an interesting experiment, but again, I feel like it w- he was going a little bit more experimental, um, more, I guess, like, some of his early films, but in a, in a much different, uh, broader way. Mm-hmm. I feel like the tree of life sums up everything that Malik was doing in the rest of his career. And it does it well. The, uh, editing that I had an issue with in new world, I felt was utilized a lot more efficiently. And in order to tell a better story to make the emotions richer and, um, give them more of a punch, I guess you mm-hmm. could say. 
Um, and again, not everybody's going to have that experience and that's fine. But for me, I found that, um, the, the, again, um, Malik just used, um, just a powerfully moving poetry. I felt visually. Um, and I, I think that that's Nate, you seem to be talking about storytelling. He's become a weakened storyteller. I very much disagree with you with that. But I think that we're kind of talking on opposite ends plus, of the spectrum. Plus, I also feel like you're downplaying an, experience, an experiential nature of yes. a film, this which film, I think sometimes... My experiential some... nature of it was that I was bored through much of it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but I'm just saying that films of this type, and I've seen films of this type with you before, mm-hmm. that are extremely, you know, you know, are, are less about the plot mm-hmm. and the characters, and this, or mm-hmm. those plot and characters are more simple, <clears throat> that... You don't value an experience of of that film okay. or whatnot, okay. and how that I value. That I do value much. the film as an experience, but I, I just think that when you think critically about the film, its flaws become more apparent. I uh, listen. I, I will just. I want to say one thing. Um, there is a filmmaker who made a film that encompasses the whole of life from the origins to the very end. It is called 2001 A Space Odyssey. The filmmaker is Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm surprised that this hasn't come up sooner in the podcast because there are definite parallels to these films. Um, And that is a film that I think is more successful and more focused and makes me think more deeply about the meaning of life and man's place in the universe uh, than The Tree of Life does. Now listen, one more thing. I'm sorry if I'm hogging the... uh, I'm kind of on a roll here. I want to say one thing while it's still in the forefront of my mind. Um... Had Malik focused simply on the 50s story, the boy growing up in Waco, Texas, and being torn between his mother and father, he would have had a better shot of accomplishing what he wanted to because you can still draw universal truths from specific small experiences. Filmmakers do it all the time. He didn't have to flash back to to the beginning of the universe to give us that scope. Everything is right there on the kid's face. He he didn't have to. But see... But see, here's the amazing thing. He does pull it off. Because you know what? The vast majority, and I would say above 75-80% of the film, is set in the 50s. So, like, all of this seems to me as, like, a nitpicky kind of, like, this, that, and the other. Like, understandably, I, I can there, there, there's some good points I think you're raising about it to, to help us fill out and think about it a bit more. You know, but I I'm do believe, about, yeah. personally, okay. that most of it is set in the 1950s, and mm-hmm. most of it... To me, seems like for what the film is is attempting to do through, like Andrew was saying, the more fractured editing through you know only a small okay, okay. scope of of, of you, years. You see what I mean? You understand what I mean, though? You, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, Matt, but you understand my point, right? Of finding universal truths in small. No, stories. yeah, and I, you, I, you watch a movie yeah. like Ikiru, yeah, or uh, Diary of a Country Priest, Wild or Strawberry. Tokyo Story, or Wild Strawberries, and these are very small, intimate films that somehow encompass. Mm all of life, and I think that that's possible. Um, Malik, of course, had different ideas on the film. I'm just saying that those, the the largeness of it, the the digressions into the the solar system and the stars and the asteroids and dinosaurs, it kind of takes away from me. No, I would say it fills it 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 out better, and I would say, too, that Bergman, as you referenced Mm -hmm. the Bergman film of Wild Strawberries, also made Fanny and Alexander, Mm -hmm. which I think encompassed many different things and yeah. use many okay. different characters right. and that <clears throat> we can live in a world where we have the small films right. that work well and mm-hmm. even say the things like right. Mitsugushi or this right. whatnot mm-hmm. and we can have the large films and they can both coexist. Mm. Yeah. 
course they can. There's room in my heart for all types of films. And here's and here's the thing: is you mentioned 2001. I think it's almost impossible not to evoke images of 2001 from watching this movie. Mm -hmm. I don't. Again, obviously, I don't think it's a direct ripoff. I think Terrence Malick does um, very, very, uh, I guess, wildly original things with this film. That 2001, I think, you know, for its day. It's really the most comparable film in many ways, which is ironic because, as Matt mentioned, eighty percent of it takes place in the nineteen fifties. <laughs> um, but just the the ideas of what he does, I think it brings a maybe you can say it's ham fisted, but a more obvious importance to the events that are taking place in that time. It's period. very earnest. It's yeah. very on the nose. It's very accessible. Okay. Yeah. Two, I think that people watch 2001 and are kind of confused by the obscurity of it. I think that you can watch The Tree of Life and, and get what's happening. Uh, but I yes. feel like when I was in the theater after the movie was over, almost throughout the crowd, the murmurs were, what the heck was that? Where, what was that even about? What, what, I don't get it. Was there a story at all? Um, I guess it's even better. There's a story in that one. There's, there's like all this murmur about what the story was, what it all meant. I don't think it's as clear as um, I don't think it's as clear as you're making it out to be. Yeah, there, there are still mysterious parts of the film oh, yeah. that and you know will probably reveal themselves on multiple viewings. Here's here's another uh, thing, and we mentioned <clears throat> 2001. I really want to say that 2001 is a good way to view this film. Yes, but I don't think it complete. Yeah, because I think actually, in some ways, it's more like Tarkovsky's Solaris. Yeah. than it is okay. 2001. Because Tarkovsky's Solaris is dealing with all these science fiction elements, it's dealing with this, that, and the other, but it's grounded in this personal story. And that those things don't divert from it. And I also believe that the things in this don't divert from it. Now, maybe structurally you said that it's jarring, but I don't think, honestly, if you get to the core of how the entire arc moves... I don't think that it mm. undermines it at all, much like it doesn't in Solaris, mm. with all the science fiction elements, as well as like the personal story of this astronaut and his wife, and mm. this, that, and the other. Mm. And I think another film you mentioned, you, you mentioned Brezon, the director? Yeah, Robert uh, Brezon, yes. Um, mm -hmm. And Ahazad Balthazar. That film, mm -hmm. story-wise, structures all over the place. It's very much just fragments of life, which is, that's mm -hmm. another film that I think tries to encapsulate all of life. Yes, it's humanity in two hours, right? Yes. And it's told um, from the perspective of a of a beast. Very um, original. Yeah, and I think... <laughs> and yeah. that, that film also doesn't have a clear structure. It also is often off-putting or jarring. But like Tree of Life and like in the end of that film, there's, for me, there's a moment of profoundness. And I don't think that Ahazad Balthazar was a earnest film or... Um, what was the other word? Or like a gooey film at all, either. I feel like there's a sense of joy, but there's also a sense of tragedy as well. And I feel the same way about Tree of Life. Yeah, um, ultimately, I Nate, I think that you're viewing Tree of Life uh, too much as a movie without a story and not enough. I'm too conventional in my taste. Yeah, not, a, not enough. <laughs> you're, not a, no. you're not viewing it enough as an experience that has a story within it. Okay. I think but you see I the think. danger of saying, you know, you need to appreciate the film as an experience, right? Do you see how that kind of... How is that a danger? Well, that that completely... That means you can't analyze it as, as you can any other film. You're saying that it's beyond criticism. 
that any, kind of, any that. kind of order I that I that. seek to impose on the film is entirely missing the point. But you also have to say that there's a danger to you on the opposite end of the spectrum, too, which I think you're maybe erring towards a little bit more, is that rather than letting the film take its effect, rather than in some ways letting the film take you on its ride, you are imposing I've been on your its ride. walls. <laughs> no, I've, I've taken the in, ride. But you are huge <laughs> on setting up these walls or barriers or whatnot from letting it through. Okay. Well. And like, look, I, I, I don't think that that's entire. Uh-huh. it's not entirely accurate to watch, <laughs> but I'm saying that there is a danger on that opposite end of the mm-hmm. spectrum that you are going, that anyone, and including me, including Andy or Andrew, that we set up walls or defenses uh-huh. that we're not willing to give the film a chance on its own terms. And to really willing to just say, look, like, take away some of these things because some of these things will color too much about what this film is I, actually doing. Yeah, Nate, I think that you have a uh, uh, more of an inductive uh, way of criticism where I, for me it's more deductive because I try to experience a film and if, if a film doesn't fully satisfy me then I try to deduce what is it that didn't work for me. You know, yes. For you, that's usually how. That's how I work. Uh oh. Uh oh. What are no, you? What are, how are you saying? Way, I approach films. No, I was, Andrew, I, since you're so the, knowledgeable. The, the way I see, the, <laughs> the way it, it, I'm perceiving it uh-huh. to be is. Tell me. You say. What kind of viewer am I? Oh, no, you, no, I told you. No, 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 no. no. Tell me, I okay. am interested. in this. No, yeah, but um, again, maybe I, it's maybe I have totally that. misinterpreted you. But okay. the way I see it Tell is, me, you, when you're watching a film like Tree of Life. Uh, you're watching it like, okay, I'm going to watch this film and see what I like or what I don't like about it. Eh, wrong. Okay. Nice try, okay. Andrew. Right. I appreciate but, the it. <laughs> because I'm just saying, when I when I Listen. when I see a film, I, I want to be I want to be fully entrenched in the experience of however the wherever the filmmaker wants me to wants to take me. I walked out of the theater. I saw this movie two weeks ago, actually. Yeah. Early, I saw the film early. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell you any of this before. Oh my god! And I staggered oh. out of the theater dazed, like you know, I had just seen you know a film to end all films and everything. Mm. I just kind of, I was quiet. I didn't want to say anything to anyone else. Right. I just wanted to bask in the glow of the film, uh-huh. and that lasted for about an hour. After lunch, I went home, and I had forgotten most of that, and the film felt far less impressive, okay. and uh, I started kind of deconstructing it in my head, and then I found certain things that confused or alienated me about it, and, um, and, and that's, that's what I'm saying. Is as an experience, the film is phenomenal, but you know, because it's so divorced from the power of story and character, right. it kind of floats away after look, a while. I, I want to preface this with... That is fair, because this is something that you... And look, I understand that Malik... Look, I feel this way, and I am an advocate for challenging cinema. I understand I love Gaspar Noe films, but I understand why people cannot stand Gaspar Noe films. I love Lars von Trier, but I understand why... So, I, you know, like I don't want it to come from a place that it's like, let's just all pile on Nate, because I do... You know, I do think you have, <laughs> you do have uh, something important to bring up, and do challenge us. I can take anything extremely... you can dish out. I'm no. twice a man that you are. Okay, no, I understand. It's but, a line but, from the thin red line. I know, right? I know. But, but, but I, and look, but I, I do want it to like be clear that it's like, I, you know, uh, look, 
you and then and uh, as as someone who's a friend, this and the other, you do challenge everything that I think and make me sharpen what I already think or reconsider these things. So right. I, I I do think it's true, but at the same time. I do think that, you know, it's a wide range yeah. of response. Yeah. And to me, Listen. it's like I, I I, wasn't emotional in the first point of it, and but I was really impressed by it. I, I, I kind of felt like like heart beating fast and this and the other. The next day, I, I just started thinking about it. I started to cry. Yeah. I started, I just, I, 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 I wept. And then I was like, I have to that's, talk to somebody in my family. That's I have wonderful. To, you, know, that's, that, you know what? I appreciate the fact that Malik can inspire those kinds of feelings in people. Right. Um, I felt that at times right. during the Thin Red Line and certain parts of Days of Heaven. And um, I just think that he's not above reproach. I don't think that you can say, oh, you know, your criticism isn't valid because he's not doing things the way you're doing them. No, I'm not, I'm not um, saying it's valid. Right, right. And so, uh, you know, I'm s- simply trying to find a foothold right. on Malik. He's so airy, he's so ethereal, yeah. that it's kind of hard to... I just think um, he's hard know. to pin down, and I don't think it's bad that he is hard to pin down. I think this, is an, interest- this yeah. is an interesting arc, though, that we have here, because... We have Matt, who is this all-around Malik fanatic. Fanatic. <laughs> you have I am biased, people. You have me, who is very top-heavy on Malik's later films, and then you have Nate, who is And I'm coming across heavy. as a hater, and I love the guy, so <laughs> I, I, that's the weird thing about this conversation. Yeah. He I like Terrence he, Malik. No, 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 no. I'm saying that you're very top-heavy on his earlier works. But, right. but so, he engenders yeah. these kind of responses, and mm-hmm. I think that's why he's such an essential and important true. filmmaker. Here's the thing. Um, Andy, I challenge you or Andrew or Matt to uh, help me out with this okay. because there were certain images in the Tree of Life that completely bewildered me. Okay. Alrighty, There's a shot, um, first of all, where Jessica Chastain starts to levitate. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that qualifies as a spoiler, but there it is. It doesn't matter. Uh, that's, that. <laughs> that's, that's where the Tarkovsky uh, references might come in because I know right. Tarkovsky was big on that. But I just think it comes out of nowhere and it's kind of mm-hmm. weird and it was just him experimenting and putting it in because it looks cool. It comes um, out of nowhere in Tarkovsky films as well. Yeah. Well, okay, I and, would disagree and, with that, but I, I don't want to discuss. I don't want to. This is a Tarkovsky episode. Um, I, okay, all right, <laughs> but let's move on. There were other shots too. There's a shot of uh, the child's bedroom completely submerged in water, and mm-hmm. he's kind of swimming out of it. There's a shot in which Sean Penn emerges from the desert through a door in the desert. That's not connected to a house. Do you remember that yeah, shot? Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> let's go image at a time. The okay. the 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 bedroom with the water. Right. I think in some ways right. is kind of a is you he, know if you take it in say a mm-hmm. biblical sense. Which mm-hmm. look, you cannot mm-hmm. say that there isn't a, at least a spiritual underpinning whether he's religious or not. I don't know, but he was uh-huh. brought up by a Syrian Orthodox, you know, Syrian Orthodox, you know, Christians. And so I think that's a part of his cinematic language, whether, just like so Scorsese he just, is He Catholic. just threw it in there because... But I think it, it resembles like a flood Nate, story. I'll just, I'll it, just satisfy... It resembles like a flood story, but at the end of time, represent, you know, okay. as, as, as like a mirror to the near the beginning of time with... You know, with a flood story only near the end of time and, 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 and like a marker. Okay, that, the end of that time. hadn't occurred to me. Nate, Nate I'll, <laughs> just, I'll just satisfy your curiosity and just say that they're all pretentious metaphors, but it's still an amazing <laughs> film. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, the one word that I hope to avoid during this podcast was pretentious, but oh, uh, thank you, you for breaking the ice. Oh, no. Pretentious <laughs> does not... Pretentious is an overused word. Of course this film is pretentious. So what? Yeah. So what? There you know? You, there you go. <laughs> Many of my favorite films can qualify. There you go. Um, I think that's uh, a very lame uh, word. Uh, yeah. That's a cliche that people slander. fall back on. <laughs> anyway, Take I like back to use slander, my right. friend. Absolutely. Well, um... Where do you want yeah. to go from here? Right, well, I, think, I think we've basically I, I think spilled our guts we, about we've this. Kind of, we've kind of covered the majority of it. I think we're kind of... Uh, I, I do want to talk to just two more key things, and they're technical things. Mm-hmm. Just just things that I think are really good and things that I think will help people to know what's, what's you know really excellent about this film on a technical level that people uh-huh. will appreciate. Oh, yeah. One thing I think is, look, Malik Films, he is an auteur, but I do think... He is so, it's so vital with his collaborators, and this is a good example Mm. of him using Jack Fisk, who has worked on every single Mm -hmm. one of his films from the beginning. His production design is just. Yeah, the the evocation of 50s uh, town is something out of Bradbury. Oh, yeah. And and, and very vivid. The Splot score, much like the Zimmer score Mm -hmm. earlier on, or. or, or, I think an entire podcast can be dedicated to the soundtrack alone and all the various kinds of music that he uses, especially the classical music, which strikes me as very kind of. Churchy, and I don't right. mean that in a bad way. I right. mean like liturgical, right? And it's, uh, holy music. And Lubezki's amazing. Ah. Lubezki is is a personal favorite of mine. I love the man. Excellent and His work in, in New World is excellent, mm-hmm. and in this, once again, and Douglas, Douglas Trumbull. Yeah. Oh. Ah, there's the big oh. wild card. The guy there. who worked on 2001: A Space Odyssey special effects and Blade Runner. Having worked effects. on films and film Jurassic Park mm-hmm. and Jurassic Park as well. He's he's just an excellent and 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 look. As a special effects extravaganza, I think that Tree of Life rivals Transformers. Oh, oh. yeah. In terms of special effects. I would effects. say rivals <laughs> any film. <laughs> that was a joke. That would be Andy's a, not laughing. That would be a great double <laughs> Darn feature, it. wouldn't it? Oh, God. Can... <laughs> Transformers right. and then Tree of Life. Listen, listen. listen. Guys, I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to fill in for Jonathan Borello, who's absent today. You know, a little comic relief never hurt anybody. I think Malik should... Uh, uh, consider using a little bit more comic relief. You know, he actually relief. wrote a script on Jerry Lewis during his hiatus. I would love to see that. <laughs> yeah. And what, Matt, what was one of Malick's favorite films again? Malick's one of his favorite oh, films. Zoolander, right? Oh, yeah, Zoolander <laughs> is one of his favorite films. No <laughs> lie. He, he he found out, and, and Ben uh, Stiller heard about it, and he was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, And apparently that is he almost... loves quoting that. He's He's just... That yeah. is almost as good as Robert Bresson's appreciation of Goldfinger. <laughs> and uh, and who was Tar- Tarkovsky's love yeah. of Terminator. <laughs> Although, I will tell you this. Here's an interesting high art convergence of a lot of different filmmakers. He had a, a planned stage adaptation during his hiatus where he wanted to do Sancho the Bailiff. And it was going to be directed by Polish director Andrzej Wajda. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I, I totally butchered that name. I know he did Danton and he did uh, you uh, know. Andre Vaja. Yeah. yeah, right, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean it, it's so it, you know he's 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 a complex character, and to me, Terrence Malick and this film totally essential. You got to see it, and I think see it multiple times. And I say make this only a if you pick. want to. 
once is enough for me. Make it but, a big you know. hit, people. It's important. This is cinema <laughs> at its finest. American cinema at its finest. This is cinema at its most vaultingly ambitious. Sorry. <laughs> and even if so, you can quote me more on that. Reason, uh, even more reason to check it out. Even more reason to get into it. Mm. So... Yeah, yeah, and I think we all agree on that point. I think that's a point of agreement. Absolutely, all for, for all. I mean, I. It's funny when when you talk about a film, you don't realize how you feel about it until you start talking about it in a group or start writing about it. Totally. I'm afraid I sounded a little bit too harsh on this film. I have many questions and reservations about it, but it's absolutely essential cinema. Mm. It was a tremendous cinema cinema experience. And uh, I recommend everyone see it. The true best picture of the year. We'll see if the Oscars actually... Well, you know, we've still got The Hangover 2. I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> Stop it! No! Oh, right. gosh. Speaking right. of which, to end off the episode, do we have any uh, yeah, recommendations? recommendations? Oh. All right. Andy, do you have a recommendation? We're going to start with you. Gosh. Um, I, I guess I'll recommend uh, The Conformist. Oh, yeah. nice one. Nice one. Uh, I saw that recently at the New Beverly with as, part of, as part of a double feature. And That's I was the best place to see it. Yeah. Yes, it was. It was awesome, and I was totally blown away by its uh, depths and how subtle it handled a variety of themes from sexuality to family um, to identity. All of it uh, ties together very neatly, and it's Fascism. beautifully shot, and it's really compelling. And I. Was really impressed by it. I highly recommend it. It's a great, but it's also a very good suspenseful spy thriller on top of all of that. Mm, so, excellent. Yeah. Nice one, Andy. Nice. Nate. Okay, um, I recommend a movie by Jean Vigo, the French filmmaker who died at the age of, I think, 29 wow. in the 30s when he only completed two feature films. Uh, there's a box set of his movies coming out on Criterion this August. The complete Jean Vigo. Highly recommend it. The, the film I'm recommending specifically is a movie called Zero for Conduct. It's about a revolt in a boys' school, in a repressive boys' school. Um, it was made in 1934, I believe, or 1933. And it's only 40 minutes long, but it has one of the earliest uses that I can remember of slow motion, uh, which is used very evocatively. It's, uh, it has several parallels to a Lindsay Anderson film called If, Starring Ooh. Malcolm McDowell. I don't know if anyone's seen that film here. Oh, I've heard of it. It's I another. Need to see it. Yeah, it's an excellent movie. It's fun. It's kind of a surrealist film. I think it has a lot in common with Boonwell, if anyone here likes Louis Boonwell. Nice. Yeah, love it. And um, it's uh, going to come to this country very soon. Yes. So, um, awesome. highly recommend that one. Great recommendation. Can't wait to see that. Um, uh, I, I'm going to cheat. There are two movies. I'm sorry. But they tie together. I know. Hey, he's the editor-in-chief. He gets to do that. I guess. I mean, it's, it's not fair, but still. Um, uh, but, there, but there's a convergence because they are two James Cagney films, and they're both from the 30s, one from 1930, one from 1931. Doorway to Hell uh, by Archie Mayo uh, that stars uh, Lou Ayers, and uh, in supporting role, James Cagney, and then The Public Enemy, which is mm. his most famous role. Public Enemy. You know, and, uh, and it's a gangster film classic. Both are well-told, well-shot, and more, far more dramatic than you would think. You know, you would think there would be a bit more shoot 'em up A lot of films of the 30s, you know, gangster films seem to just be <coughs> action-oriented. And these are far more dramatic and complex and 
you know, Cagney is just, he just lights up the screen. Gotta love Cagney. Excellent. Yeah. He is so good at gleefully being the bad guy <laughs> and not making any, you know, in kind of a peck and pawing way. He's bad and you know he's bad, but there's something appealing that you like. Does about James Cagney him. have that scene in Public Enemy where he. Puts a grapefruit in a girl's yeah, face. Yeah, the infamous one, which they did not tell the actress that they were going to do that, as well as they actually beat him up in parts of it and did not tell James Cagney. <laughs> so there's quite a bit of authenticity yeah. to the oh, public enemy. stunning ending mm. to public enemy. You remember? Yes, okay. most definitely. All right, nice. All right, Cagney well, double in the, in the uh, trend of 1930s films, uh, I think I'm going to go with, I think it was the 30s. Well, it was uh, Make Way for Tomorrow. Oh, wow. You've wow. seen, you've seen yes. it. Yes, Leo yeah. McCary, 1937. Great movie, man. Uh, that one kind of blew me away. I mean, it's such a it's such an intimate little film about uh, such a tragic little uh, old couple who's um, losing their home, and, their, um, and all of their children are all uh, married, and, and they have no place to put them, you know, during the... It's around the Depression, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so it, it's a very touching movie. Very underrated, I think. I mean, it's on Criterion now, so you can um, Maybe definitely find it on Netflix. the greatest film ever made about the plight of elderly citizens. Absolutely, it's, absolutely. It's, it's very reminiscent in some... Or not reminiscent, but uh, I found a lot of similarities between it and uh, Ozu. Exactly. Um, Tokyo yeah, Story in particular. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right, but I, I mean, think Ozu was heavily inspired by this film, yeah. so that's legitimate. Nice. Yeah, it's sure. funny, Leo McCary won the Oscar that year for Best Director, uh-huh. but he won it for a screwball comedy called The Awful Truth, mm-hmm. which, is a, which is a great screwball comedy. But when he accepted his award, he said, I appreciate the award, but I won it for the wrong film. He was wow. talking about Make Way for Tomorrow. Nice. So finally... Awesome. A film on Jonathan Rosenbaum's A Thousand Essential List, by the way. Mm-hmm. Even more reason to see so that concludes our episode of Chronicle Cast talking about the Tree of Life. Find us on Facebook at The Alternative Chronicle. You can also find us at The Alternative Chronicle, um, alternativechronicle.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Alt Chronicle, twitter.com slash Alt Chronicle, and go on iTunes, rate us, review us, give us a star rating. Keep us going, because we love doing this. Just as a little note, we're going to go on a little bit of a hiatus. We're going to retool a couple things about the show, and we're going to streamline it, and we're going to make it even better for all of you. So we hope we you enjoyed the Malik episode, but it's just going to get better from here, guys. So thank you so much for listening, and you all have a fine day, and go see the Tree of Life. Yes.